Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Ken Liu, author of the Dandelion Dynasty series and the winner of the Hugo, Nebula, and World Science Fiction Awards. We talk about the book publishing business, how content for niche markets has expanded, and online communities in general. Ken also tells us about how stories are a way humans are programmed. This was a fun interview for me. Ken's one of my really good friends that I've known for a very long time. And this interview sort of went all over the place, but hopefully you will enjoy it. I thought his insight in particular to the importance of story in the human experience and how that's been changed a little bit by the scale of society was very insightful. Hopefully you guys enjoy what we are about to talk about. Ken Liu, what's up? How's everything going? Hey, Jimmy. Good to uh, be talking to you again. Hmm. Yeah, uh, you're you're up in Massachusetts, right? How how are things over there with COVID? I am. Uh, things are okay, I guess. I mean, I think uh, there's the fear that we're going to have a second wave because the number of new cases is going up. So I, I, I think everybody's talking about how we can't go into lockdown again. So we're just going to try to do the best we can to keep it localized and to be vigilant and try to limit any outbreaks. So hopefully we can do that. Um, so that's the hope. Is it is it kind of locked down? Are people like like going places? Is there traffic? Like what, what what's it like? I mean, you know, we had a phased reopening and, you know, people are reopened. I mean, businesses are open. People are going to work. And but, you know, it is true that uh, things are still uh, depressed because people are afraid. I mean, for example, you know, not a lot of people are going to dry cleaners because a lot of people are still working from home and therefore they don't need their nice office clothes. So, you know, it just cycles around uh, and people are probably delaying um, repairs and renovations if they can and going to the doctor and dentist. Uh, so I, I think everything is down, even though, you know, things are reopened. Yeah, it's uh, it's still kind of a crazy time. And, uh, and we've obviously talked about that before. But uh, I wanted to talk to you today about, um, you know, your work as an author and everything like that. Um, just for my audience, uh, can you tell us about some of the work that you've done? Sure. So I've been writing and publishing for more than 20 years now. Um, I started out mainly publishing short fiction. So short stories, novelettes, novellas. Um, one of my stories, The Paper Menagerie, uh, was the first piece of fiction to win the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. Uh, and I've had about 100, more than 150 pieces of short fiction published by this point. Um, and then later on, about a decade after I started as a short fiction writer, I shifted into writing novels. And so I have one major um, epic fantasy series out. It's called The Dandelion Dynasty. The first book is called The Grace of Kings. Uh, that's how most people know it. But the series is called The Dandelion Dynasty. Um, I have two books out in there. Um, and the third and fourth books are coming out next year. Actually, today, they just did a cover reveal for the third book. Uh, and you can see it on Tor.com. It's called The Veiled Throne. Um, and I really like it. These are epic fantasy in which, you know, instead of wizards, uh, we have engineers uh, who come up with clever ideas. So the magic is really 
um, alternate science fiction. Uh, that's the sort of thing I write. And then finally, I wrote a Star Wars book called The Legends of Luke Skywalker. And uh, it's a book aimed at middle grade kids. So if you're a fan or your kids are fans of Star Wars, I think that's a fun book to pick up. Uh, and other than that, some of my uh, work uh, has been optioned for film and TV development. So, for example, AMC is doing a show, an animated series based on um, a cycle of my stories about the singularity. Uh, it's called Pantheon, and that should be coming out soon. Uh, they just had a writer's room for that to write the scripts, and that was a lot of fun. Yeah, and you, you've done quite a lot, and you've been in this industry for a long time. Um, what what are the economics like? How much how much do you get paid for like a short story versus like a novel? And you know what what's the and like if you're optioning something off to Hollywood, like what's that like? And how much like like what what's that whole process like? Yeah, yeah. This is this is a great question because you know people actually people think authors. It's, it's such a mysterious profession. You know, people have no idea how much you get paid, and it's sort of a it's sort of a weird experience, really. Uh, I've I've been doing this for a long time, and I still find the whole thing very mysterious in many ways. So, I'll start from the low end. Um, so, uh, when you the 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 conventional wisdom is you can't make a living um, as a writer, or most writers cannot make a living as writers, and that is true. Publishing is one of those very um, pyramid-shaped professions, meaning that the, the vast majority of the uh, value generated, the money generated, flow to very few authors near the top. And the vast majority of the creators don't get a lot of the money. That's true in, in the profession. So most of us who, who write and publish, uh, I'll speak just about genre fiction, like science fiction and fantasy, a lot of us, uh, if not uh, most of us, um, especially in the past, start out writing short fiction. And when you're trying to sell short fiction to magazines, um, even though science fiction and fantasy is sort of the only, that's, that's the only um, uh, genre in which um, there's actually a thriving short fiction market, paying short fiction market, you don't get paid a lot. Um, five cents a word for the longest time was considered pro rates. In fact, it used to be even lower than that, but five cents a word was considered a very good. Um, so if you work in nonfiction, you, you, you find that preposterous, you know, like a dollar a word is considered low, you know, in that world. So, um, uh, five cents a word seems, uh, ridiculous. Uh, and, and you're right. You cannot possibly make a living on that. Um, and so most short fiction writers, uh, including myself, don't do it as, as the only way to make a living. We, we do it as a, uh, as a side thing, uh, because the reward there really isn't the money. Um, there are, of course, exceptions. I mean, um, you know, there are some short fiction writers who end up having their work adapted for film, uh, in which case they, you know, get their payday. But that's, that's so rare that it's really not something you can plan on. Um, so that's why most people, um, if they want to be pros in the sense of that, that becomes their job, the way they make a living. I mean, by the way, lots of writers don't actually want to do that. Lots of writers are perfectly happy uh, having a day job and then writing on the side. But, you know, it's not, it's not like all the writers care about doing that. But, you know, if you do care about 
wanting to turn pro in the sense of making a living, then you're going to probably have to shift into writing um, long form fiction novels, essentially. Uh, that's that makes sense just because there are many more people who read novels than short stories. I mean, you know, just think about your own reading habits. Uh, even me, you know, who who I read probably more short fiction than most people, but I don't read that many. I mean, I read some anthologies, some magazines, but compared to the number of novels and other things I read, it's it's minuscule. Um, so many more readers are interested in novels, and so that's where writers who, who want to um, uh, become pros uh, shift their their efforts. And novels are tricky. Uh, I, I mean, the way novels are, uh, the economics works is you get paid in advance, which is an advance against your future royalties. The idea is the publisher will prepay you for an estimate of a reasonable amount of, of royalties, and you have to earn that out before you see additional income. Uh, and they pay the, the advance to you in chunks. Like there's a chunk on signing, there's another chunk when you turn the draft in, and another chunk when you publish. So, you know, when you hear news about some writer getting a $200,000 advance or something, it doesn't mean that they got that many all at once. They probably got 50 on signing, and then the rest doled out in chunks as pieces are delivered. Um, and then, you know, if the book is a bestseller, then you earn out that advance very quickly and you continue to earn royalties. Um, and But if it's not, then you you end up, you, you keep the money. I mean, you don't have to give the advance back if your book doesn't sell well. <laughs> um, but, uh, but, you know, uh, if you do that and you don't earn out, then in the future, other publishers will see that as part of your record and they will adjust how much they're willing to pay you as an advance accordingly. So it's not like you get free money. Uh, there's always a cost to, to that sort of thing. Um, advances range widely all over the place. I mean, I've heard of advances that are just a couple thousand dollars or even nothing to all the way up to, you know, half a million to a million dollars. So it really depends on who you are. But again, if you're the sort of author who really brings brings in a lot of uh, readers, then you can expect a very high advance. And, and sometimes uh, you don't even need a big advance because why bother? I mean, you might as well just take a higher royalty rate and, and get that in. So, so far, I'm just talking about traditional publishing. Uh, and of course, if you are a best-selling author, then of course, you end up having all sorts of ancillary income streams. People invite you to give talks and speeches. You get to, you get invited to... Um, uh, do all sorts of other projects. Uh, Hollywood will come and option your work. So if you sell well, then you know you get all sorts of other ancillary income streams that can sometimes overtake the publishing revenue. Um, but that's just all in the traditional way of doing things. More and more now, I'm seeing authors shifting to uh, independent or hybrid models, meaning they don't really go through the traditional publisher route anymore. They try to reach their own, they build their own fan base and they um, sell to readers directly or via uh, a platform like Amazon, uh, the Kindle publishing platform. Um, typically, or they go through some sort of uh, Patreon-like model where um, they directly you know, give out their work to fans who sign up uh, to support them on a per creation or on a periodic basis. And, and I know some authors have been very successful doing that. 
Um, if you have a passionate fan base who really love the things you do, uh, you don't need to go through the traditional publishing model. You can perfectly well just rely on your fans. And you can even do this via short fiction. You don't even need to do novels. I mean, if, if you have thousands of fans willing to pay you uh, three bucks, five bucks, uh, or even a dollar for each story, and you write a story uh, a month, then you can make a very comfortable you know, living that way. Um, I, I think not a lot of people can do it, but certainly more than ever before. I mean, this was not possible at all in the old days. You, you couldn't possibly do this. But now I'm seeing people who have been able to do it. So, you know, it's really cool to see that kind of model working. And a lot of people are succeeding as Kindle publishing, uh, published authors, um, that you basically write your own novel, novella, series, what have you. Uh, and then you have to figure out how to work with the algorithm, the recommendation algorithm, uh, and you can build a fan base. Um, and uh, I've seen lots of examples where authors who write for audiences who are underserved by traditional publishing, uh, you know, folks who are interested in a particular genre of romance, a particular subgenre of heart sci-fi, uh, a particular kind of uh, office politics thriller type of thing that just doesn't fit neatly into your traditional publishing genre labels, people have been doing very well. You know, there, there are people who want to read these books and, and traditional publishers are not serving them. So they, they read these. So whenever you see those statistics about how, you know, people are not reading as much as they used to, or, you know, uh, the, the book market is down or whatnot, I'm always very skeptical about it because I don't think they're counting all the readers. You know, there are lots of lots of people who never go to a bookstore, who never buy a physical book, who never buy even a book from the Kindle store that's published by a traditional publisher, but, but who read voraciously. It's just that the authors they read, none of them have signed with traditional publishers. They're all on their own. And and sometimes the industry statistics don't capture that at all. But they are reading. You know, they are they're out there uh, doing their thing. Uh, and there are authors who are succeeding very well with them. So it, from my perspective, I guess, I, I think it's a pretty healthy, uh, exciting time. So you might hear a lot of stories about authors lamenting how, you know, it's getting harder and harder to make a living as a writer. I'm not convinced that's really true. I, I, think, I think more writers are actually now successful and able to make a living by creating uh, stuff than ever before. The pyramid is getting wider and wider, and uh, even the middle parts of the pyramid is getting wider. Um, that's that's what I think. It's just that it just happens that a lot of it is in the shadows, and uh, when we observe it from mainstream perspectives, we don't see a lot of it. Well, I've I've heard a lot about how publishing has changed over the last twenty years, and given your career, you might be able to speak more about it, but it, it does seem like there used to be like these giant mega deals uh, for say like a recently retired president or something like that, uh, where they would get an insane advance of like $10 million or something like that. They, you know, write a book and then, you know, they, they'd be able to go through that, but it doesn't seem like those things happen as much anymore. You don't, you don't get, celebrity tell-all books that you know sell so much like what what's going on is it just kind of decentralizing or are people not as interested what what do you think well 
you know, I'm not. Um, I don't study the publishing industry all that uh, in great detail, but I can say that your anecdotal impression is probably accurate.、Um, but you have to realize that publishing is a very tiny industry. I mean,、uh, people often think publishing is is huge, and but but publishing is really a glamour industry that has very little real economic. Um, you know, wait.、Um, I mean, I'll just give you a sense of it.、Um, so, publishing, like all publishing, is tiny, tiny compared to, say, Hollywood. Okay, I mean, just no doubt in there. It's <laughs> just not not even a question. What 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 you don't really understand is is even Hollywood, global, the global film industry is tiny compared to the real economic heavyweights, like a single bank. Uh, the world's largest bank. I think it's、uh, it's the it's it's one of the industrial bank of China or whatever.、Um, the world's largest bank, I think, in 2019, made more in profits than the revenue of the entire world's film industry. Like the profits of a single bank was higher than the revenue of the entire world box office. I, I mean. When you when you think about that, it's it's insane. I mean, if you think about you know finance as some sort of leviathan, a whale in the ocean, you know Hollywood is nothing more than a baby elephant sitting on top of that whale, and uh, uh, publishing is is like a little flea on that baby elephant. You know that's that's what it's like. So when you point out that there doesn't seem to be a lot of big deals in publishing, my answer is yeah, because publishing. Has always been a tiny part of the economy. It's just not that big a deal. Publishing's weight has always been,、uh, in the way, it dominated the conversation of the literati, the the elite conversation of of our culture. But nowadays, there's so much more competition for that. You know, if you're a thought leader, it used to be that you would write a book.、Uh, but nowadays, you know, the way you become a thought leader is you, <laughs> is you tweet. Uh, or you make a TikTok, or you know whatever you do, you go you do something that makes it go viral,、uh, and and the way you get influence now is not just to, um, uh, through publishing books, and you, you go around and be a speaker, you、uh, figure out some other way to reach folks、uh, with your ideas. So、um, it, it doesn't really surprise me that publishing feels like it's less relevant than ever.、Um, That that's just the way it is.、Uh, I think that's real,、uh, but it doesn't really bother me because storytelling really isn't limited to publishing anyway. I mean, I think storytellers、uh, or writers who are interested and and who have good ideas to share can do it not just through books.、Uh, they can do it through games. They can do it through、um, speaking. They can do it through film and TV and all sorts of other ways to get their ideas out.、Uh, it it the fact that Traditional publishing is not just a small part of the economy, but also an increasingly small part of our overall cultural conversation. Really, isn't that big a deal? Well, there there is this sense though that a lot of these,、um, you know, publishers, Hollywood,、uh, you know, like the culture that we're in, like the culture makers, if you will, they used to have some sort of gatekeeping function, which. 
now they seem to have much less of. Uh, I think that's what you're kind of talking about. You you needed to go through a publisher in order to publish a book. Now you don't have to. You can just publish it on your own. Um, you used to have to go to Hollywood or, uh, you know, if you wanted to be on a newscast, you had to, you know, get a degree in broadcast journalism or something. Um, now you can just like create your own stuff on YouTube. Like how how has that like how how has that changed uh, like what's out there, uh, especially in terms of books? I I think I think overall it's it's a good thing for um, for readers and and for you know folks who are interested in storytelling and ideas and and all the things that publishing is supposed to serve. I mean you're, you're absolutely right. I mean. It used to be that you had very few channels to go through if you wanted to reach a broad audience. You, you either do that or you create your own little pamphlet and hand it out on the street corner to you know whoever will be willing to stop and, and take it. And then most of the time, nobody cares. Um, it, it is different now. I mean, you know, I uh, Nassim uh, Nicholas Taleb is famous for you know eschewing traditional publishers. He, he's going to do it on his own because he wants to, he doesn't go through the whole review process. He doesn't care about book reviews, all, all the traditional ways you publicize your book to the world. He's just doing it on his own to directly through social media, through speeches, through, you know, people passionately advocating for his ideas. You know, uh, I, I really admire that. He's, he's doing it on his own. And somebody else, uh, another author I greatly admire, Corey Doctorow, He's also experimenting with, again, trying to distribute his own books directly, uh, the, his audiobook uh, versions directly. I actually had to do an event with him. Uh, I did an event with him last night on his new book, Attack Surface, um, which is really wonderful. I mean, if you know anything about Corey's work, he's, he's very passionate about freedom, about digital freedoms, about digital rights, about... Um, the need for us to be free from surveillance and, and from the overarching power of centralized governments. Uh, he's, uh, and, and his fiction is really very thought-provoking. Uh, I mean, it's not every author could get an endorsement from Edward Snowden, uh, you know, and so I think, I think that really speaks to how interesting his ideas are. And he's trying to reach his, you know, he's always tried to reach his readers directly. Um, I really admire that. So, you know, putting aside these high-profile cases, uh, I was talking to you earlier about how so many writers have been able to reach their readers directly. Um, even, you know, uh, Andy Weir, the author of uh, The Martian, you know, he his book started out as basically on his blog. You know, <laughs> people loved it, uh, and and that's it, it was essentially a self-published effort before it became a, a traditional publishing success. Uh, and I, I know so many other writers, so, so many friends who started out that way. They they were writing things that agents and editors at major publishing houses couldn't see a market for or didn't want to publish. And they just said, okay, well, then I'll just go find my own readers. And they went out and did their own. And they were able, their stories are quirky. They they have subgenres that aren't established. They, they tell stories and no one wants, <laughs> no one realized what, be interesting, you know. Um, I, I know somebody who writes um, what are called reverse harem romances. I mean, I think you can guess the idea. It's it's one female lead, 
uh, with many male love interests. And this is, you know, obviously a, a romance subgenre has been wildly successful uh, in self-publishing, but it's not well served by the traditional market. Um, so there are lots of examples like that where, um, you know, people clearly love to read books of a certain genre or subgenre or type, uh, and traditional publishing wasn't serving those books to readers, so writers had to go find their own way of, of reaching them. Um, and same thing, I mean, so many of the nonfiction books I read now started out with blogs. They, they started with blog ideas who found an audience and then uh, became books. So I, I, I really think this is a good moment for, and just, not just in books, but you know, in film and TV too. It used to be that you know, before the streaming platforms came out and boosted all of these new shows, I mean, we're living through this golden age of TV, you know, so many more high quality shows are being made today than ever before. So many people who never would have gotten a chance to work in TV are now working TV. When you no longer have to create something that appeals to as many people in America as as possible, now you can go into niche interests. You can serve sub segments that couldn't be served before and, and this is this is cool, you know. Instead of making the most lowest common denominator kind of um, stuff, you can go really deep into specific niches, and so we're seeing a blossoming of of great stuff, good content. At the same time, though, you do see like Hollywood, which is like, okay, what's the what's a comic book character that we haven't done yet, or something like that, and they release the movie. So it, it does seem like there that the old guard is still going for a mass appeal kind of thing, but it does it seems like there's more subgenres or smaller communities that these books and it, it's a but Jimmy it's a distribution issue. I mean you know folks who are making Netflix originals and Amazon originals are not doing that. The, the only people who are doing the kind of, you know, reboots of reboots of reboots of characters everyone knows is stuff aimed at the theater, the movie theater, because, you know, you only have a limited number of those. And the only way you make money in that is to have a, you know, to crush the opening weekend. So the very model forces you to, you know, stick to these tried and true stories that no one really cares about. But are willing to tolerate. So that's where it is. So I don't think anything interesting is happening um, at that level. You know, that's not where the interesting films are being made. The interesting films are showing up on streaming platforms. They're done by indie filmmakers. They are documentaries. They are films that do well at festivals and find niche audiences on Vimeo or some other indie distribution channel. Well, you mentioned distribution and uh, it's interesting because some of your short stories have been optioned by Hollywood and so on. How does that whole process work? Because, you know, I mean, option obviously means that they have the option to make it if they want to. But like, what's that like? Like, do you get paid more than like you would for a short story? How does that happen? Well, you know, an option is an option. So an option is exactly what you said. It's a it's a it's a small payment to get the exclusive rights to develop it in the in the expectation that it will eventually be turning to something big uh, when they wish to purchase it outright. Um, so the the way the process works is, you know, when they option something for development, they pay a very small amount, a, a token amount. Really, it's not it's not much money. 
you can think of it as comparable to what you get paid um, when you sell your short story, you know, for a first publication. I mean, I, I exaggerate a little bit. I mean, it's probably a little more than that, but not much. Um, so fine. So they take the money. And then after that comes the development process. This is where, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, the folks who get the option now go out to try to find screenwriters, uh, directors to attach folks who are interested in the project to it so you can get a package um, and then find um, uh, real money. And, and at which point, you know, if, if there's enough development that's being done and everyone thinks that a real, the, the, the show or the film can actually be made, that's when they decide to actually exercise the option and, and pay you the big bucks uh, to acquire the rights to do so. Um, and so every project is different. Some projects don't really care about involving the author of the underlying material because some authors have no interest in doing development. They, they don't care about participating in the adaptation of their story. They don't want to um, go in there and argue with people about how things ought to be changed. Uh, but some authors are. Some authors really love that process of how do I make the story that was meant to be read into a story that's meant to be shown? How do you change things so that it works better for the screen? How do you expand it so that there's more? How do you cut out pieces that are not relevant? Um, you know, how do you do that? Uh, some writers actually want to do their own adaptation. Uh, you know, some writers who actually have um, the interest as well as the skill for screenwriting will want to participate as um, actual uh, screenwriters on their own projects. They'll say, you know, I know better than anybody else how to adapt my own work. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in there and this is this is what has to be done. So that that's how that whole thing works. But that also requires some distribution and them knowing about what is out there. How, how did they find it? Yeah, that's a really good question. You're talking about the discovery problem, right? You know, that's, that's the hard thing. I mean, traditionally, I think the way it worked is, you know, uh, Hollywood relied on signals from from the market. Uh, publishing is a small market, but it is a market. So if some book is selling well, if some book is getting a lot of critical attention, some book is getting a lot of award nominations, um, it's in the conversation a lot, you know, that's usually a good signal to Hollywood that something is worth paying attention to. But when it comes to short fiction, it's, it's just so hard. Um, there's so much uh, novels too. I mean, just so... Like, like I was talking about earlier, there are so many more channels now to reach audiences. And I, I think actually it is the case that sometimes decision makers in Hollywood don't really know um, where necessarily the most interesting stuff is happening. I mean, for example, right, um, webtoons are very popular with young people. You know, they, they came out of Korea, but, but they're, they're very popular across the world now. And most of the creators of webtoons are... I think uh, women uh, and their audiences tend to be young women. Uh, these are very vibrant, exciting markets all, full of all sorts of awesome stories. I haven't heard of a lot of, uh, of these stories being optioned by Hollywood. Maybe they're being optioned by Korean filmmakers, but I don't think a lot of American filmmakers are paying attention there. So I think that's a missed opportunity. You know, there's a lot of awesome stuff being done by Webtoon creators that I think Hollywood ought to pay attention to. Uh, but, you know, there's just so much out there that unless you have um, executives who are really 
looking everywhere or have interns who know how to look into the new places, you're not going to find them. Um, but, but I think the system will eventually catch up, you know, whenever there is an opportunity, uh, someone is going to be able to exploit it and find the, the gems, the nuggets, and, and then there will be a gold rush. So I'm just waiting for, you know, somebody in Hollywood to wake up and realize that there's a lot of awesome stuff being done in, um, webtoons, a lot of great stuff being done in, uh, indie published subgenres that no one else is talking about in the wider world, but, but whose fans are really passionate. I, I think that's where, you know, your, your next grade, um, cultural changing, um, conversation starting type of big thing is going to come out of it's, it's where young people are excited about what they're reading and what they're, what they're consuming. It's where, uh, the most energy uh, is flowing. Yeah, I mean, the process sounds like to me like uh, you know you described the pyramid earlier, like filling in various levels of the pyramid, and I we obviously the people at the top are you know the Hollywood movie executives or uh, you know a major publisher or something like that. But there's all of these things that are sort of below that level that are getting filled in now. So and depending on the audience, it can actually be quite big. Uh, and, you know, you can make a good living off of it. Uh, like, do you see that process continuing to happen? Like, is that, like, are, are there, uh, for example, filmmakers that aren't maybe at the Hollywood level, but, you know, maybe a notch or two below that, that are, you know, trying to take on these projects that are discovering maybe a webtoon and, trying to make a live action version or something like that. It, it is. I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, that's, you know, we, we've been talking about this forever, you know, now the, 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 uh, the, the video capabilities of something like an iPhone is good enough that you can actually make a whole movie out of it. The, the technology and the, the hardware required and the software required to make a decent film, you know, is now easily within reach of anybody who wants to, going to filmmaking. The, 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 the problem that has not been solved, I think, is still discoverability and, um, and distribution. Um, you know, the, there's no real equivalent to um, Kindle publishing for uh, small independent films. I think, you know, you, you see some of it in the way TikTok stars are born, YouTube stars are born, but it's still a very personality-driven kind of business. It's really about, you know, exposing itself. It's not really so much about telling telling a story, uh, you know, a piece of fiction. It's, 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 if you will, you know, what's successful right now in TikTok and, and, and YouTube are, are reality, you know, reality-based programming. But, but scripted stuff isn't actually quite there yet. Um, and, and the trick is whether, you know, these platforms can become the new ways for discovery and audience building um, for filmic content the way uh, we now have uh, stuff for written uh, fiction. I also want to point out that, you know, there's there's always this tension in the evolution of, of these platforms and technologies between democratization and empowerment versus centralization and disempowerment. It's always a push-pull kind of dynamic. So in the earliest days of Kindle publishing, it was very freeing. It was very empowering. You know, as I was mentioning earlier, 
writers who could otherwise never get a deal with traditional publishing are now able to find their audiences and become successful. And readers who could never find what they wanted to read are able to read, to now read stories that seem to be written just for them. You know, it was awesome. It was a time of disintermediation. It was a time of empowerment. It was a time of chaotic, wild freedom, right? But what happened next is, you know, the Kindle became such an all-powerful platform that it became basically the only way to succeed as a self-publishing author. So now the dynamics are all reversed. Uh, everyone is now writing to please the mysterious Kindle algorithm. Uh, Amazon gets to dictate the terms under which authors will write. Um, Amazon gets to squeeze and, and impose more control over what is acceptable, what is not. You end up with uh, a very stifling kind of um, uh, situation where, um, you know, you don't have the traditional publishing gatekeepers anymore, but now you have new bosses uh, who are not just the same as the old bosses, but worse. You know, <laughs> when the algorithm says your book is banned, you, you don't even get to you know, dispute that and, and argue with anyone. It, it just is. The algorithm says no, and <laughs> you're gone. Uh, so that's that's in some ways even worse. Um, and, and so now there are attempts to see, can we break free from this model? Is there some other alternative model that's decentralized so that we don't put all the power into one company? But this is the same, you know, dynamic everywhere. I mean, you, you see this happening in other countries too, um, with other markets where one dominant player became the the platform and now everyone's like uh this is not good i mean youtube has the same thing right i mean um youtube gets to arbitrarily declare what is acceptable what is not uh anytime you have that kind of concentration of power you have the formula for disaster all these platforms rise up by disrupting and disintermediating the old gatekeepers but then they become the new gatekeepers you know that's that's just an eternal recurring problem. Uh, and I know, Jimmy, you think about this a lot too. I mean, what do you think is the way to, to solve this kind of centralization of, of power, of, of control, of you know, ultimately um, ways to gatekeep? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I wish I knew. Uh, I mean, I, I wrote in my newsletter earlier this week about how you know, we, we really need to decentralize, but if you want to decentralize, it's going to actually cost you something, right? Like, uh, and this is something that I know from Bitcoin. If you, if you really want Bitcoin to be decentralized, you have to run your own node. You have to run your own software. And if you don't want the tech giants to control your stuff, well, you're going to have to start, you know, running your own email server and running your own uh, you know, Twitter server or something like that, uh, a similar thing. So you you have you can control your own content distribution. But I, I wanted to go back to something that I think is at the heart of this whole thing, which is that when you have gatekeepers, there's sort of like a control of culture, right? Like a control of um, you know what the conversation is. They they get to frame the conversation in some way, and. Uh, give you a sense of what's normal or right, or they, they can kind of impose their values on you. Um, how much of that still do you think exists? I and mean, you were saying that in a sense, like Amazon is almost worse than the traditional publishers. Um, like in, in terms of culture and free expression of ideas and things like that, how much uh, more of that is there currently? 
It, it's really hard to say because, you know, the problem is when we say free expression, uh, we're not talking about an, a unidimensional issue, right? It's multidimensional. There, there are types of content, degrees of content, degrees of control, um, and many types of, of filtering and, 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 and um, uh, gatekeeping. Uh, so in some ways, certain types of content are now easier to get around than ever before. I mean, I feel like, um, uh, you know, as I was mentioning, there are subgenres of fiction that couldn't be, that really ha- couldn't be profitably published or, you know, just couldn't be published because it was seen as not respectable or whatever it is that are now proliferating and, and, and succeeding. But on the other hand, there are plenty of things that are not allowed to proliferate and succeed. And oftentimes we don't even know that's happening because we don't know what we don't see, right? It's sort of the unknown unknowns, right? Uh, that, 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 that idea has been mocked, but it's actually very true. We, we just don't know what the unknown unknowns are. And we don't know what are the books that have never been written and, and have been abandoned simply because they couldn't succeed at all. They couldn't even come out. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a difficult issue because people always call this sort of thing censorship and, and then you get into an argument over what is censorship. Uh, so I'm not particularly interested in getting into that argument. I simply want to point out that there is a cost, as you mentioned, um, to doing any action. There's a cost to decentralization. There's a cost to um, saying uh, what you want to say. Uh, in every society, there are certain questions you're not allowed to ask, and there are certain things you're not allowed to say. And sometimes the reasons that you're not allowed to say or ask these things are very good reasons. I mean, if you're in the middle of a war, you are not going to allow a lot of people to propaganda, to release propaganda for your enemy. That's just a matter of basic survival. But sometimes there are very bad reasons for, for limiting uh, the things you can say and to say certain questions are off limits. Um, it's, 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 it tends to be very difficult um, to talk about what should be allowed and what questions should be asked or should not be allowed to be asked in a way that's calm because these are often extremely emotional issues. Uh, and, and we, especially nowadays, we, uh, because trolling has become such an important part of our discourse, um, you can't really even ask these questions or talk about some of this stuff without being accused of trolling. And, and sometimes, in fact, people do ask these questions as a way of trolling. And it's hard to tell trolling apart from other types of discourse. And so the net result is we just remain silent. I, I think more and more of us now are willing to remain silent simply because we don't wish to engage the cost of um, trolling conversations. And I think that is a net loss for all of us. I don't have a great conver- I don't have a great solution for it, though. Um, I, I don't have a great solution. I, I, I wish there were some way we can we can adjust the cost function for quote unquote saying the wrong thing in a way that allows um, us to all be uh, a little bit freer with the way we discuss things and and to evaluate solutions to problems in a more honest way. But I, I don't I don't think we are at a point where that's really possible. You know, I, I wish there were a magical solution for some of these problems, but there isn't. Well, so, so far, like, at least talking to you about this, it, it, the, the problem seems to be 
that we have this private sphere where only we know it. And then we have this public sphere where the entire world can potentially know about it. And, you know, you, you get trolls and, uh, and things like that. There's got to be something in between, right? Like something semi-private where... Well, uh, Jimmy, you're right. I mean, I think that's what's being lost. I think that's actually one of the great things that's being lost. That there, there, there used to be the idea of the private sphere and somewhere in between, like, you know, the whole right to be forgot, to be, to, to, to be forgotten, you know, that's being mocked a lot, but, but it shouldn't be mocked because the right to be forgotten was something taken for granted. You, you could make mistakes or say something you regret later and it wouldn't travel no more than, uh, you know, a dozen or a couple hundred people. And then it would just die out. We, we don't have that luxury anymore. Not only, can things go viral? They they can also go viral years after you thought it was gone. It's just you know they'll never go away. <laughs> Memories uh, people can trolls can screenshot what you do and then bring it back up uh, years later. Um, there's just never there's no such thing as as anything less than total public transparency, like you say. Um, we 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 do lack it. I mean, it used to be again that people would believe that they can write letters uh, or say things to their intimate friends and expect that it will be just kept that way. Um, or at least it wasn't so easy for them to publicize and make it into an issue. But now I think we all have to assume that whatever we do um, can be instantly turned into you know, public. We, we really don't have anything in between. In some ways, I feel like this is about scalability and this is about our relentless pursuit of, of the ever larger and the ever more centralized. Um, if, if we didn't have such a all-encompassing, everybody is connected to everybody, anything will go viral, and there is no such thing as less than total 100% publicity. If we didn't design and, and end up in a world like this where everything is centralized, maybe we wouldn't be in this position. Maybe if we formed more localized um, intimate groups, we, we form more localized cells of, of um, connectivity that only periodically and only when reaching a certain threshold went outside, maybe we would do better. Um, I don't know, but that's, that does not seem to be what we have right now. I, I agree with you. Part of the problem is from the, the way we conduct ourselves now in discussions about ideas, um, we seem to have only really private discussions between ourselves and family members and really close friends versus the entire world. There's just nothing in between. And, and that cannot possibly be the way human beings are meant to function. I think what you're talking about are small communities, right? I, and we do have something like online communities, but they're not that satisfactory. Uh, there, there's something really missing about them because most of the time you don't get to see those people and there's not sort of that organic, um, you know, relationship building and things like that, which uh, accompany community building that, that really ends up with, you know, tight knit groups that actually trust each other and have each other's back and so on. Is that something that you think is the key there? I think so. I, and I, I always wonder how we can really foster it and create it properly. Because I, I do think, you know, one of the reasons, uh, I mean, sociologists have been saying this forever, that part of the issue with modern 
American cities and modernity in general is that we are now living point-to-point existences. Uh, we, we, we live in houses, we drive to where we work, we drive to where we shop, and cities are structured around parking lots and serving cars. Um, and we often, uh, our topology in, in our minds is point-to-point. We don't really pay that much attention to the folks that are actually right around us all that much. You know, there are many people living in large cities who have no idea who are the individuals living above, below, next to them. They just don't. They have no idea. They, they've, sometimes they've never even seen them. Um, and and it, is, it is weird that, that we've allowed ourselves to develop in this manner. And I agree with you. The um, communities are sort of the key, the communities of trust, of intimacy, where we can develop our ideas and, and realize early on whether they are good ideas that, that, that are worth developing more or actually ideas that are wrong and we need to change our thinking. I mean, that crucial stage just seems to be lacking for many people. We don't, we don't have that. Um, one of the things about the pandemic now is, you know, I end up having to go to a lot of conferences and conventions virtually, and I find them deeply unsatisfying because, you know, everything good about actual cons are gone. Uh, everything's gone. You know, that, that's good about conventions. Uh, everything's gone. You don't have the random encounters in hallways where you just meet someone or, or you, you, encounter two people talking about something that you happen to know something about, so you join in. You don't have the intimate, high bandwidth, in-person communication with people you don't get to see often, but, but who you know really get you. Uh, you. You don't have any of the informal and structured people meeting people thing. You know, like, you know, I always remember the story about how Pixar was structured in such a way that every floor had, you know, one centralized restroom so that it would force all the employees to go over there and make random encounters. You know, it sounds like a joke, but it actually does work. And apparently, you know, that was an important part of Pixar's culture that you have this kind of random encounters between people and that really fostered a sense of community, of of cooperation, of collaboration, of being part of a team. That's the kind of thing that, that real conventions could foster. But you know, now what we have are you go and listen to Zoom panels. You either participate in one or you ask a question and then, or you talk to people in Discord and it's like either you're talking to no one, you're talking to 100 people all at once. I mean, it's just like ridiculous. Um, and even when you can figure out some way around that with breakout rooms or whatnot, they're just so disembodied, so not real. <laughs> It, it just doesn't feel like anything. Um, even, you know, like like the conversation we're having now, you and me just having conversation, just voice. This feels better than some of the artificial Zoom things that, that we do. And I just, I, I find it very weird that, you know, all this effort into technology of, of telepresence and we're in some ways farther off than, than, than we ever were. Um, the, the, the idea of, of bringing people closer together, we seem to have, not being able to progress beyond a phone call. Well, so one of the things that I think may happen with Bitcoin is that we get smaller states in general, right? Like uh, the United States is just a gigantic centralized thing. Uh, so is the European Union, certainly China. Um, and, uh, and you know, one of my theses is, theses is that we'll get smaller states in general, something 
like a Monaco or a Liechtenstein or Malta or something like that. And you'll get a lot more of that going forward. Um, say that we had smaller states like that. How would all of this change? How would culture change? How would, you know, you know, publishing or, you know, bookmaking or filmmaking or, you know, creativity of all kinds, like how would, how would all of that change if we had something like that? Well, you know, I really think that if you had more city states, you would have probably one or two things. I mean, you would have two things happen, I, I think. Um, I, I, I don't know because, you know, there are always unforeseen consequences and implications. But I think one of the things you would see is more genuine diversity. Because uh, I think one of the things that we don't talk about in terms of diversity is diversity actually requires um, the right of association with those who share your sense of community. So what you're going to see, I think, will be smaller communities that are more uniform internally, but many more such communities. Does that make sense? So I, I think that's actually true diversity. It's not that you force people who have radically incompatible world beliefs to all live in close proximity. I, I actually don't think that's a very good model for fostering anything. I think what you want are actually genuine, small, organic communities in which individuals get to experience that sense of support and intimacy um, and to develop their ideas fully and to have their visions developed and then to have multiple such local communities sharing with each other. Um, that, I think, is much more likely to produce real diversity of ideas and, and, and um, a sense of belonging and intimacy for individuals. And so that's one. The other consequence, I think, is a, a, a much deeper sense of commitment and integration and involvement um, in uh, politics, culture, and everything else. So instead of spending a lot of time arguing with strangers on Twitter, which is something that I have to confess I have done all too many times, um, we would now be able to um, uh, discuss issues that are local. Our politics will become much more localized. You know, instead of fighting over imposing centralized national standards over everything, which I don't believe is a good idea at all, um, you now can argue at a community level about very small things that are deeply uh, important to the community. You, you now have a chance to um, talk about these things with real stakes. Uh, and I think that will reduce the incentive to troll to, to, to um, uh, perform. Uh, but rather, there will be more of a chance to actually um, uh, have you know, skin in the game, as uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb would say, uh, because you have to deal with these people on a day-to-day -day basis, and, and they have to deal with you on a day-to-day -day basis. They cannot just troll you uh, and expect to have no consequences. Uh, you, you actually will have to articulate how you feel and, and what you feel, and, and it will no longer be the case that not caring is the default victory position. You know, the less you care about something, the more you're likely to win is the modern way internet arguments resolved. That 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 is that is the very opposite of how you come to any kind of useful, fruitful 
conclusion discussion about anything. Um, the stakes have to be local, communities have to be real, and all the participants have to actually have real stakes in, in, in the outcome. Uh, so I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in city-states. I, I do agree with you that um, I think a lot of our problems are scale issues. We, we, we have grown our authority structures, our states, our finance systems, our legal systems, everything too large. Um, you, you cannot always think that uniform rules, uniform, inflexible bureaucratic rules for hundreds of millions of people, and in fact, or billions of people in some cases, is a good idea. And yet we insist on centralized states and centralization rather than more federalization and more uh, federation and, and not federalized, more federation and more um, uh, devolving of authority to local and, and more local levels. Yeah, what you're describing is basically what Bitcoiners call you know, citadels or something like that, where you'd have a small community or where, you know, you, you get to uh, live in close proximity with others that, uh, you know, agree with you to some degree. And, you know, you, you have like a common defense. It, it's essentially a city state, like, like you were saying. Um, I mean, do you see a trend in that direction? I, I personally see like, Bitcoin being a big part of that because of, you know, right, right now, like what keeps borders are largely, you know, financial, like having a currency or whatever, um, you know, gives those centralized governments enormous power. And that's, that's what they use to sort of like, um, keep, uh, their citizens from leaving and so on. What, what do you think happens uh, as you go towards that smaller scale? Like, does, do things change? Like, how, what, what do you see happening? You know, as a, as a speculative fiction writer, I'm often accused of being pessimistic uh, because I tend to see the problems with um, any kind of evolution uh, in directions that, even though I, I agree with these directions um, uh, in principle. I mean... One of the biggest problems I have is uh, with all these utopian visions of smaller city states. I mean, plenty of fiction, you know, has been written about visions of the future in which um, we do have more um, smaller communities that overall boost diversity, largely because people have the freedom of movement. You know, you get to choose the community you want to be in, and and so you're not stuck by accident. You know, we 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 don't want to keep people where they're not happy that 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 is definitely not what we want <laughs> we want to have people to have the ability to move to where they want but um one of the reasons why i'm very skeptical about these visions is i don't see how we can get there without a, a, a huge amount of suffering and pain uh you know like you say cost there is a reason why uh i mean i you know, you go back and look at history, there is a reason why the U.S. decided to set off on this path of pursuing becoming the world's hegemon uh, a century ago. Um, and the, the, the problem is once you, you become the hegemon, there's a lot of people, a lot of capital, a lot of individuals' um, self-definition that are going to be tied up with that. Uh, when you're talking about going to a smaller more locally controlled states, uh, you know, the folks who benefit from the current arrangement are not going to give that up without a fight. And, and these are the people with the tanks and the guns and the nuclear weapons. Um, you, you don't get to 
you don't get to declare your own sovereignty apart from, you know, whether it's the U.S. or the People's Republic of China or Russia or India or what have you without, um, you know, real consequences. And, you know, what are our solutions? I, I'm not sure I see a way out. I mean, I'm very sympathetic to the to the Bitcoin um, claim of, you know, ultimately decentering and replacing the hege hegemony of the dollar. But you know, the, 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 the dollar hegemony has real value to those who are rent seeking on top of it. They are the ones again with real power to inflict violence. They're not going to give that up without, you know, a fight. So I don't know how we get there. Uh, I mean, you, you've seen the, the, the very thing where, you know, the very mechanism for um, getting around money laundering regulations uh, is now being charged uh, under those laws. But that's going to just happen at the same, you know, on, on different scales over and over again. Uh, there's no way that um, the current financial uh, regime is going to give up their control uh, without a fight, uh, on, or unless they can impose some sort of centralized control over cryptocurrency the way, you know, India is trying to do. Uh, so I don't really see a way out. Uh, you know, the, the ultimately those who have access and power for violence are going to dictate the conversation to a large degree. I mean, do you see a more hopeful way out of that? That's a good question. I, I've, I've thought about it. And uh, even like this current election and the, this season just feels different than every other one that I've ever been, you know, that that's happened in my lifetime. But what, one of the things that I heard a commentator say is, you know, like, I think the US needs to break up. And he, he was basically saying, if, say, Trump wins, you could, I, I could see a scenario in which like California secedes, something like that, maybe, maybe with Oregon and Washington, something like that. Um, or if Biden wins, then maybe Texas secedes, something, something like that. I mean, that, that's not exactly city-state, but it's a step in that direction. And it's possible that it could be done in sort of a peaceful way, uh, which would be great. I, I would love to see a peaceful sort of um, transition into that area. Um, I, I, I would challenge you, Ken, like write, write a science fiction story that, <laughs> that talks about this transition and does so in a realistic way that talks about, uh, you know, what people are going through uh, as they try to figure out, like, what a new world that's not so centralized looks like. And I don't, I don't know. Is there is there a lot of violence? Yeah, but there's also, like, a lot of people with guns, you know? Like, that's, that's part of the American ethic is that, you know, you like you, you can send in tanks for like a, an army, but if it's not an army, if it's like individuals, it's, it's a lot harder. So, you know, I would hope for uh, a peaceful transition to, you know, to the end of centralized super state power. Um, that would be great. But my trouble with that vision has always been, I, I, I think, you know, at some point the fact that the state has, control over our physical bodies will come into play. You know, it's that, that old joke where you can have the best cryptographic protection for your data uh, and it would take supercomputers thousands of years to crack it and you think you're secure. But, you know, that's not what the state is going to do. They're just going to 
grab you and then use a $2 wrench to beat you until, until you give up the password. I mean, it's sort of similar in the sense that you can attempt to put all your wealth into Bitcoin uh, out of the reach of the state, but the state ultimately will just come grab you um, and, you know, uh, hit you until you give up your brain wallet. Uh, it's, it's sort of the same idea. I, I don't know how we can get over the fact that the state has a monopoly over violence um, and they're not afraid to use it, uh, especially since certain individuals who are rent-seeking on top of the current system have a lot of incentive to keep it that way. And in addition to that, my other concern is, you know, as much as I dislike centralized states and all the problems that come with it, I can't deny the fact that centralized states have also solved a great deal of problems. I mean, many, the fact that we have enormous populations who are kept fed and cloth and um, able to, you know, get basic health care to some degree or other uh, is largely because of the reallocation and distribution, redistribution of resources by centralized states. Whatever it is that we end up transitioning to, I I have to hope that in that process, we don't leave these folks behind. We don't leave the folks who are dependent on the centralized state behind, that they have to also find their own empowered places within the new world order, uh, that the city-states are able to care for them, uh, and that we don't, in fact, leave folks behind. I mean, it's, it's always in the implementation of great ideas, always the execution that counts. You know, we, we can spin all the utopian scenarios we want, but I worry a lot about how in practice this is going to turn out. I mean, I know that your point is we really want to emphasize that the Bitcoin revolution is meant to be a peaceful revolution, bloodless. Um, but historically, every attempt to achieve a bloodless revolution has in some ways fallen short of the goal. Um, the, the, you, you can never under, underestimate the degree to which those who benefit from the current system wish to hold on to it. Uh, you just you cannot get a hegemon to step down peacefully and you can't get rent seekers to give up their, you know, their feeding trough. Yeah, and that that's definitely true. And I, I honestly wonder, like, how long that process takes and what it'll go through. I, I would say, though, that despite the fact that, like, technically the state has a monopoly on violence, it's not in actuality, right? Because people can own guns, people can sort of defend themselves and, and, and things like that. Um, and that's that's part of at least the American ethic, the idea that they can't just come and take whatever they want for no reason. There has to be at least some justification for doing that. I, I wonder, um, like, as we, uh, you know, like sort of look towards the future and, you know, think about some of this stuff, like, you know, you, you mentioned that the cent- large... Um, centralized state has successfully fed a lot of people, clothed people, um, and, and things like that. I would not give them that much credit. I would say that a lot of that is actually the free market uh, that that did that. Um, you know, I mean, hospitals, for example, were almost always like uh, charitable organizations until they became more institutionalized and so on. Um, you know, so healthcare, for example, is not necessarily something that was given by the state. It it started as a charitable endeavor, and I don't think we can necessarily just sort of, um, you know, think uh, okay, if we get to a certain state, that charity wouldn't take a lot of it away. Now we have no way of knowing that, of course. Uh, 
But I suspect that we're underestimating people's, uh, I don't know, good nature or desire to not see other people suffer or something like that. It, it is very hard to disentangle these issues. I mean, you know, oftentimes pre-modern societies have a very bad rep. Uh, for how they dealt with these problems. But if you actually go back and investigate, you'll see that, you know, oftentimes um, pre-modern societies before the rise of centralized nation states often had very good localized ways of dealing with these issues, localized ways of controlling pandemics, localized ways of handling um, the uh, those without family support, localized ways of supporting uh, people who uh, cannot otherwise uh, be economically productive, but who nonetheless contribute to society and who, you know, simply deserve basic human rights. Uh, not not every pre-modern society was ideal, but some certainly were. So, you know, my hope would be that we can um, end up with more models that hew to those successful examples rather than the the not so good ones. Um, so, you know, I, I definitely don't uh, want to give modern centralized bureaucracies all the credit in the world. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they certainly have solved some problems better, uh, I think, than some pre-modern societies. But I think there are ways we can do, um, you know, post-centralized state local communities that are going to be better. Um, I, I just... Um, I don't want to be too utopian about this because I do think there are real issues that we have to worry about in that transition. There are real problems that we have struggled for centuries post-alignment to adjust to, to deal with that are not just going to disappear overnight. Uh, and anything that comes after centralized states will have to solve it. Um, or, you know, you know, I can go full pessimistic and envision the future in which there will be one super state that covers the entire globe and we're all following one set of rules, one set of laws, one set of, you know, one coin, <laughs> whatever that may be, that is controlled by one centralized board. Um, that that would make me very depressed. I mean, who's to say we're not there now, right? Like you, you talked about the hegemony of the U.S. We're, we're not that far from say the digital dollar, uh, the dollar is already sort of the reserve currency everywhere and every other currencies like that. There's also cultural imperialism, right? Like there's uh, an export of American culture pretty much all over the world. And well, one particular model of American culture, right? It's, it's not, yeah. So that, that's, these are all things that are deeply problematic. Not everybody is a fan of that, except those who happen to be, you know, benefiting from it. Yeah, I, I look, you know, I, I have been very, very concerned about centralization of power really since the days when we were working as programmers, um, you know, together. Uh, it, it's, it's just gotten worse and worse. Uh, it's an accelerating issue. Um, and what worries me a little bit, I guess, is that the, the view that we're discussing here where we think centralized power is, is in itself uh, bad, you know, it's it's bad in say. Um, we don't really see a huge amount of discussion of that. At least I don't. I mean, in elite opinion circles, I just don't see a lot of people who are questioning fundamentally um, whether it's a good thing for countries to be so large, uh, whether it's a good thing to have so much power granted to central governments. Um, it, it just doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of uh, serious 
uh, questioning of that fundamental assumption uh, in world politics. You know, it's 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 the opinion of elites everywhere seems that more power to centralize governments. Um, as long as they are nominally democratic, is a good thing. Uh, but I, I don't think that's right. And uh, and I think you you mentioned this before. They're feeding at the trough of uh, you know rent uh, of the government and all the you know goodies that they get as a result of having that opinion. And it's uh, it's uh, I, I think uh, you know it was Upton Sinclair that said it's hard to convince a man against an opinion that would jeopardize his job or make make. Uh, or is an essential part of his job, or something like that, and that, and that's uh, that's essentially what all of these elites are: is they're sort of culture makers, or uh, they're they're subservient to you know the people that are paying them, right? Like that, what what the heck's a think tank, right? But that's basically a culture maker for that particular point of view that they want to espouse. Um, so I, bringing it back to sort of like books and content and culture a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, how does that need to change in order to bring about, I guess, maybe a decentralization? Because almost um, like I, I think you, you hit upon something that I think is sort of like a default assumption for everybody, which is that centralization or more power in the hands of fewer people is an essentially good thing. It's it's almost like like imagination is lost there uh, about how culture itself needs to be div- subdivided and changed and decentralized and uh, and things like that. Like how how do we use culture to go in this direction? I honestly think that the the answer is to just. I mean, I'm, this sounds like an after-school special, but I, I believe in it. <laughs> I, I, I believe, you know, I, I spent a lot of time over the pandemic thinking about what is the point of cultural production? What is the point of storytelling, right? As I mentioned to you earlier, you know, if you look at it from a purely rational economic economic point of view, um, storytelling is, is a hugely wasteful and not particularly useful thing to do. Um, you know, it's it's a tiny part of... Uh, the entertainment industry, which is a tiny part of the economy. Um, storytellers produce nothing useful. There's no, we invent nothing. We, we, um, we don't produce vaccines. We don't produce new computer chips. We don't really invent new business models. We don't do anything. I mean, you know, we're just there as jesters, <laughs> you know, we just tell you something that's entertaining. But then I thought very deeply about it. And then I said, well, you know, that that may be all true, but there is actually something very worthwhile here. Um, so, if you if you think about you know Jimmy, if you think about something that really matters to you, right? Some some value that you care about, whether it's courage, it's faith in God, the the necessity for individuals to be responsible for their own freedom, you know what what have you? If you think very deeply about it, I, I, I I'm going to guarantee you that what you think about is not some sort of dictionary definition or some philosophical quote or some you know set of symbols that illustrate how this is true. What you think about is actually some story that embodies that. You know, for me, you know, like love for family is very important. And uh, every time I think about love, I don't really think about dictionary definitions or whatnot. I think about my grandmother uh, when I was a little kid. Um, You know, I remember this one winter where my grandmother uh, was uh, knitting a sweater for me. And I could see that 
because it was dry and cold and she didn't, you know, have lotion on her hands. Her, her hands were cracked and, and her joints were very gnarled because she had arthritis and uh, manipulating those needles to make a sweater for me was very hard for her. And so I, you know, I said, you know, grandma, does it hurt? And she says, yeah, it hurts. And says, so why do you keep on doing it? And, and then she says, well, I don't want you to be cold. Um, and, you know, that has always been something that I remember a lot. And I think about, you know, how, how, how that story, you know, that memory um, really matters to me. But that's, that's how it is for all of us. We, we become who we are because we were loved by, by people, by others. Um, they came to us and they are the gods and heroes of our childhood. They, they, um, they showed us, they gave us our foundational mythologies um, that we um, armed with these legends. We set out into the world to make our own way. But part of what our duty um, is and, and what we have to do is to love others as, as, as we were loved and, and to pass on the values that we were um, given through these stories. We live our lives as a, as a great epic fantasy, a great adventure. We're the heroes of our own epic fantasy. And it's our duty to um, carry out those instructions, those, those legends, those revelations we received from our loved ones uh, and to pass them on to the next generation and to embody those values for us. You know, it's our duty to be courageous for those who need protection, to be generous to those who um, have less than we do, to um, try to help uh, all those who ask for our help, uh, because this is how we pass on the culture. This is how we pass on the value through these stories. We live the stories we want to be part of. We want to become the heroes that we admire and deserve to be. And so, you know, storytelling has an enormous influence on that because the stories we tell instruct the kinds of futures we, we build. They, they, they tell us what is worthwhile, what, is, what, is, what deserves to, to, to be preserved. Um, you know, the modernity is about this mythology of scaling, of more, of building things bigger and bigger. That in itself is somehow inherently good. But that's that's a false mythology. It's it's a false story. Um, we we know in our hearts that that's not actually a good story or or a story we want. The stories we want are to live in societies in which we get to see our friends on a daily basis. Um, that we get to sit with them and and know that we're understood. That we don't need to troll each other. Um, that we 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 understand each other. That we share some fundamental stories and beliefs together. We 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 know. We can agree on what is heroic and what is not, why um, we believe in God, why we uh, want to do the things that we do to glorify God, why we wish to um, uh, uh, de make decisions the way we want to. We, we want to have a sense of empowerment over our, our environments. We want to be in control of the houses we live in, the, the, the places we go to, the the gardens that we plant. We don't want to have others tell us that these are the things you can do and these are things you cannot. You can color within these lines and not outside of it. We want to be able to play and, and to spend time with our children. We don't want to spend our lives as merely productive elements, um, components of some large state-sponsored machine. You know, these are things that we care about. So fundamentally i think that's that's where it is that's that's what the culture is about that that's what we have to do we have to 
try to tell stories um, and live stories and set examples for those who come after us and for all of those around us that show what values really matter. You know, we, we don't need to lecture people about how important courage is and how important freedom is and how important it is to um, be your own uh, sovereign. We, we just have to actually live those examples and, and inspire others. You know, again, my grandmother didn't tell me ever, I love you. That's just not something that um, she ever would have done. Uh, she simply gave it to me by embodying and living it um, in, in every instance. Uh, and I hope that we can all do that for our children and, and for those who, who come to us and, and observe us. And you never know how you're going to inspire people. You know, it could be some chance encounter, but these stories have great power. They live on, um, you know, in the same way that the mythology, the false mythology of scale has taken over the world and, and given us all these false and, and, and ugly things, uh, we can tell beautiful stories that inspire us to make beautiful, local, embodied, embedded, organic, real things. Yeah, I mean, the idea that comes to mind, uh, talking programmer to programmer, is that stories are how you kind of program human beings, right? Like uh, you're, you're talking about instructions and, and, and like sort of modes of being and things like that, which, uh, which these stories do, you, you can lecture at a person all you want. That's not really going to get them to act differently. Whereas if you tell them a story, well, that actually goes in and this goes into, you know, th this is the real battle for culture, despite sort of the very small part of the economy that uh, culture takes up. Uh, you know, we're talking about books and movies and things like that. It's a, it, like you said, it's a tiny part of the economy, but it's nevertheless really important because this is how you program people. Uh, and if you're programming people, well, that's that's a really powerful, mighty responsibility, uh, which I'm not certain that a lot of people have been doing a very good job of. Right? Like they're they're programming us to be more dependent on the state or to uh, you know like think nihilistically or something like that, rather than uh, some of the stuff that you very beautifully expressed. Uh, which I, I would say are closer to my value. So in a sense, how, how do you, how does culture need to change in order to bring about this future? I guess is the question. I, I think we have to actually take more responsibility, you know, rather than just consuming whatever is being fed to you at the local Cineplex, you know, seek out things that really are aligned with your values and are stories you wish, you know, to to see more of and to have your children see more of you know as i was saying one of the things about modernity is that there is this push pull between the technology that enables us to be more free and the technology that turns us to be more centralized it's it's always the same thing every technology rises up as a disruptor as a way to bring more freedom until some player rent seeks on it and seizes control of it and tries to turn it into a centralized power hub. Um, you know, again, YouTube started out as a great source of freedom so that to allow people to speak to the world uh, until it became a bookkeeping, uh, sorry, a, a gatekeeping function. Uh, so it just has to be constantly disrupted. We have to constantly keep that in mind that technologies go through these life cycles where they start out as upstarts and rebels and then they become incumbents um, and, and, and tools of the centralized state. And, and we just have to constantly disrupt it. 
Um, and as creators, you have to constantly believe that scalability is not the thing you care about. It's not about telling a story that will make you billions of dollars um, because it's just barely satisfactory to millions of people. That's just not a terribly interesting thing to do. You know, I, 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 I would imagine you talk to the filmmakers who are behind some of these films. They would say, yeah, that was not my best work. That was not particularly interesting to me. So why do that? Why, why not make uh, passionate works that you deeply believe in and may be seen by a few thousand people? But those happen to be a few thousand people who also be willing to give you one dollar or, you know, a small percentage of a Bitcoin <laughs> to, to help you keep at it. You know, that seems to me to be a much better model to, to build sustainable, connected, authentic um, storytelling supported by um, authentic cultural connections. Um, I, I'm, I'm really essentially pleading for more diversity um, in a way that I think hasn't often been articulated. I think real diversity is a collective quality. It's not about a centralized uh, platform declaring uh, one version of diversity. It's, it's really about small communities of creators and consumers connecting directly um, and then saying, this is what we want. This is the story we want. No longer should we produce massive scaled stories that are meant to entertain everyone just a little bit, but small stories for small groups who that really speak to them, that really uh, resonate with their values. The analogy that I can think of uh, is, at least in Bitcoin, I, I think I mentioned this earlier, is uh, is that you run your own node. Um, and I, what, what I was hearing when you were talking about all of that is you want more content to be out there, more thoughts, more interesting, original things. And in a sense, we need to be like our own cultural nodes, right? Like producing our own stories and creating new things that that other people can sort of latch onto and understand. Um, and that, that could be in writing, that could be on video, that could be something like that. And in that sense, I'm very hopeful because there is a lot of content that's being produced by individuals, uh, although there's still far too many people that I think only consume and that's all they do. How do you get more people to produce more stuff? I think we've already done a pretty good job of empowering people to do it. I mean, you know, I watch my daughters and I'm, I'm super hopeful. Um, so, you know, during the pandemic, my daughters became huge Animal Crossing fans. They, they play it a lot, but they do it in a totally different way from how I do it. I mean, you know, I, I'm so steeped in the, um, you know, the, 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 the culture of productivity that we've all, you know, grown up in. So I go around every day and I'm like, oh, I got to, you know, go fish and I got to go do this and that and raise money so I can pay back the banker. You know, <laughs> I, have to, I have to do this as quickly as possible. I have to acquire good things and arrange them in, 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 um, fancy uh, settings. I have to uh, optimize my house and get that score up so that the Happy Home Academy will give me a trophy. You know, it's, it's so ludicrous that I'm, I'm replicating in the game exactly the same pattern that I've been trying to get out of all my life. But my daughters don't do that at all. They just don't. They, they don't particularly care about optimizing for the judgment of the Happy Home Academy. They're like, who are they? How, can, how dare they judge the way I do my house? You 
I'll do it my way. Uh, they don't care about paying back Tom Nook. They're like, fine, I just won't have a bigger house. I'm, I'm happy to live outside. Uh, they don't care about raising a lot of money. They're like, it's, it's more fun to craft your own stuff anyway. And they like to go to Harv's Island. And, and what they do there is they put on plays. Basically, it turns out that Animal Crossing for them is really just a dollhouse. They use it to tell stories. They are, they are not consumers. They are producers in Animal Crossing. They're, they're storytellers. They, they create their own designs. They make costumes. They put on plays. I mean, just the other day, my little one, my eight-year-old, very excitedly showed me uh, what she was doing in Animal Crossing. And it turns out she had created an Animal Crossing version, replica, of the of the presidential debate. Uh, and it was awesome. You know, they were all using their encouraging reactions and, and there were people down there clapping or, or, or being unhappy. It was, it was just awesome. Uh, and they do stuff like that all the time. So I, I think it's very encouraging because, you know, I think the natural instinct of, of, be, uh, of, of children is to tell stories, not just to consume them. They, they hear a story and they want to retell it in their own way. They want to make up their own stories. They're inspired to make things. Whether it's building dollhouses or, or or writing books, you know, my my little ten year old has written a novella of all things, uh, you know, and and they they create things. Part of the 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 the, the great thing about our te- our culture is that we do have a lot of technology to help people to become creators. We've we've made it easier than ever to create, you know, beautiful. Um, uh, stories based on photos, videos, text, what have you, um, you know, everyone now can express the stories that they want to tell in a compelling way. Um, and I think that's a good thing. We should keep on encouraging it, have more people realize the joy of being playful, of, of just playing with these tools and creating your own stuff. You don't have to be just a mindless consumer of, of what, you know, the algorithm from these platforms want to feed you. Take some effort to look for things that really hit it out of the park, that that really do it for you, that really are gonna be appreciated by you and and just a few other like-minded individuals. And that's that's the best thing. You know, people are always complaining about how it's terrible that we no longer have just one authoritative anchor person to tell us the news. We don't have one sitcom that everyone watches. But I'm like, how is that a good thing? How was that ever a good thing? That I'm glad that's over. That that we now don't have those kind of authorities that we can go seek out our own. Yeah, it, it, it is it is good that every uh, you know that there is more creation. Hopefully, like the quality of the things that we put out can get better. Um, you know, I mean that's that's something that. I think a lot of people kind of miss about content creation is that you, you really need high quality or else no one's going to pay attention and you're, you're not going to have any influence. Right. But we're getting there. We're getting there. I mean, just compare the videos that and the podcast people are making now compared to how they were 10 years ago. Are you kidding me? I mean, even, you know, with very basic tools, you can get much better quality than you could 10 years ago with very expensive professional equipment. We're, we're really doing pretty well. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and maybe that speaks to how the culture will decentralize naturally because we, we have a lot of these tools, honestly, a lot of it enabled by software, which, which allow everyone to create their own stuff and you know, uh, push the culture uh, in a way that they couldn't, that we really couldn't dream of, like, uh, you know, let's say like 30 years ago, it was 
pretty much network television and maybe some cable and publishers and Hollywood that basically set the culture. Now, now it's more fluid where they need to take some of this into account. And I, I do, I do have to say though, you know, I'm a, I, I don't know if this opinion is controversial or not, you know, but I do think there's a huge amount of value in making technology more accessible. So I, I know, you know, some Bitcoin enthusiasts actually don't particularly care about it. And they think that, you know, part of the fact that it's hard to get into Bitcoin is actually a, a feature. It, it requires people to invest quite a bit of themselves into it before they can understand and, and benefit from it, which, you know, I, I understand. But I do think making technologies more accessible in general is a good thing. It, it's empowering. It allows more people to free themselves. Um, so, you know, for example, I am a big believer that the way 8-bit computers worked, where you could understand everything about how it functioned from the, the chip all the way up to how you get graphics onto the screen, that you could actually, you know, take a multimeter and follow the signal all the way through, that you could actually use a screwdriver to short out some jumper cables and make things happen. And you could you understood exactly what was happening. That 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 was in some ways the golden age of technology because it was transparent. You you felt you were in control. Like I was saying, you know, I think human beings are are happier when we can play, when we are in control of our environment, of the tools that we're using. Uh, compared to today, you know, you know, you give me an iPhone. When it goes wrong, honestly, most of the time, I have no idea what to do other than rebooting it. You know, I just, I'm just like, whatever, I, I don't know. I mean, I could hook it up to to Xcode and try to figure out what, what is going on. But it's so much work. And, and most of the time, it's not worth it. And I, I don't even understand it. So many things are happening to it that, that it's, it's, it, it's a black box to me. Um, and I do feel this is disempowering, that the more we see technology as this sort of magical thing, the, the more disempowering it is. I mean, so much of, of, of modern technology is like that. You know, why is the algorithm recommending this video to me? Who knows? Why is my book being rejected by Kindle Publishing? What, what did I do wrong? Who knows? Why is my post not being allowed to be posted? What, what provision of the terms of service did I violate? Who knows? The algorithm says so. It's, I think it's deeply empowering when we have to think that way, when we have to imagine that we need to please the algorithm. I mean, you know, just recently I was, I was reading this article that really um, enraged me a little bit. It was talking about how many schools are using, you know, software um, algorithms to grade student essays. And so the way they do it, of course, is the, the cheapest way possible, which is they don't do any kind of real, you know, language processing. They just use the the bag of keywords approach you know if you have the keywords in there then you get a good score and if you don't you don't and so it doesn't really matter how cogently your essays argue you know and how you form your argument you just have to have the right keywords in there so they did an experiment where somebody just putting a jumbo of random keywords and got you know 100 percent, and somebody else who wrote a very thoughtful essay that took care not to use these keywords and they got zero i mean when we train our children that this is this is how you get ahead, or you know, when we, I, I've heard of you know uh, uh, candidates who try to get their resumes past the machine learning filters by putting uh, words like Cambridge and Oxford in white ink on white background, uh, so that it doesn't show up to a human reading it, but it shows up to the machine. I mean, I'm just like, this is not the way you know we want to 
uh, run our culture and teach children and teach people. This is not the way we do it. You know, things should not be this kind of gamified black boxes that, you know, gods in the machine that we try to please. Um, so I do think making technologies more transparent and accessible and overall more so that people feel empowered to control it is important. Uh, that includes Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we can make uh, wallets and the entire process of investing in Bitcoin more accessible to to uh, folks who can probably benefit the most from it. Because again, you know, as we all know, wealth building and wealth creation and passing on wealth uh, between generations is hugely important. And, and so much of, our, of, of the injustices that we have in society is because the ways to build and control wealth are controlled by rent-seeking classes. And Bitcoin has a potential to break that, but part of that requires it to be much more accessible and available to the folks who may benefit from it the most. Yeah, I, there, there's definitely companies working on it. If you have Cash App, you could go buy Bitcoin. I think PayPal announced today that you, you will be able to buy Bitcoin using uh, PayPal. Um you know, certainly you can go on Coinbase and buy it. If you want to possess your own, there's tons of different wallets, many of them, uh, many services that allow you to dollar cost average, all of that. Uh, all of that is available. Uh, what you were talking about, though, uh, with respect to what, you know, you, you know this uh, machine learning algorithm that's trying to grade things, that's at, at its core a scale problem, isn't it? Because... Right, like you can't grade that many things if you if you're um, a teacher with a hundred students that that's just not practical. You can't give it a personal attention, uh, or if you're trying to eliminate teachers altogether and have you know um, some way of teaching kids like just with videos or something like that. The, these are the things that you kind of have to do, uh, and you lose something as you go up that scale, uh, but. This this is the uh, the philosophical problem of software for me. In a, in a sense, it enables too much scale, uh, which kind of dehumanizes us. But at the same time, it makes things just so convenient. <laughs> it's, it really does eat the world, uh, uh, to quote Mark Andreessen, and it's uh, it's making things that were harder simpler. But it, in a sense, the the scale problem is uh, doesn't get solved in any way that's satisfactory to the human soul. Right. We we keep on having this issue. We keep on having this argument about you know. Um, I, I think the, the the part that I have trouble with is is the argument that you know scaling up and growth like this um, and, and pursuit of growth as for its own sake is inevitable. You know, there's 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 the story that it's not it's you know it's not just morally okay um, or, or or neutral to do so, but in fact inevitable. And I just don't actually agree with that. I I, I think mm. any kind of narrative about inevitability is uh, is deeply flawed. You know, including my own narrative earlier about the inevitability of, of governments, you know, uh, seeking to, con to preserve their own power through violence. If we always set out with this inevitability narrative in mind, then I think we end up not asking certain questions or trying to do certain things and, and experimenting in certain ways. But we should always um, question assumptions of inevitability. There are other stories possible and, and there are other ways, um, um, other epic journeys. Uh, and we should try to seek them out. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I know you remember from our days as in work, working in startups and so on. Like, 
you know, the VCs were pushing us so hard to scale up as quickly as possible, right? Like we were like, why why are we going after these customers and spending so much money on stuff that's clearly going to lose us money? Uh, but, you know, I, I think I, upon reflection, the thing that the conclusion I came to was that they re- uh, this is the way that the fiat money system sort of is set up. Like they need to hit home runs and they know that if you don't get to a certain scale, you don't matter at all. And uh, to run sort of like a lifestyle business is the worst thing for a VC. Uh, it's it, like you, you don't get any of the upside uh, of, of being able to scale. And that's kind of how the whole system is kind of set up. So in a way, when you say something like scale is inevitable, it's only speaking to the ecosystem that we're in, the economy that we're in. Um, and it's kind of sad that way. Well, anyway, Ken, it's uh, it's been way longer than I expected. <laughs> uh, what, where, where do you see sort of like what? One of the things that I, I want to like sort of complain to you about uh, before um, before I forget is you know like there's not much about Bitcoin and sci-fi stories, honestly. Like, what's going on? Why? Why? Like. Nobody seems to be exploring what that could mean, or they they don't even really put it into their stories. It's just sort of like economics and monetary stuff is just sort of assumed away in so many science fiction worlds or uh, visions of the future that I'm like, do these people understand just how much money means to people in any kind of society? Um, Why is that? Why, why, Why aren't they? putting it in you know i mean i i think it is true that there's not a lot of great sci-fi about cryptocurrency or bitcoin or really any kind of uh, or even economics or money even like it's it's like well you know there are some interesting work uh that has been done there are some interesting work that's been done on post-scarcity uh economies and and, and what that would look like so you know that there are actually uh, a lot of interesting work that works that, that explore that aspect of it. But in terms of specifically uh, fiscal policy and, you know, what it means to have decentralized non-fiat uh, money, I, I, I have to say it's true. I don't think a lot of work has in particularly focused on that. Um, y- y- you ask why. I, I'm not sure I have a good answer. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, there are some ideas that just seem to come into fashion in sci-fi and, and, and flow out of it. I mean, you know, for a while there, uh, almost every sci-fi story had to deal with um, uh, climate change in some way. And then uh, for a period of patent that that was no longer the case. Um, these things do seem to flow in and out in, in certain patterns because that's the way culture works, right? I mean, we, our culture comes in waves and people have to sort of tap into the zeitgeist and, and for, for, for a bit, that's all everyone thinks about. And then they start, their attention goes elsewhere. But I think in Bitcoin's case in particular, I think it hasn't, not a whole lot of good stories, uh, have been written about Bitcoin in particular, because, the narrative right now uh, that's being pushed by, um, you know, essentially the U.S. government and uh, and Wall Street um, is not a particularly uh, inspiring narrative, right? Bitcoin is uh, comes up in the news really often as a, as a matter of uh, 
illegality, money laundering, some sort of way to acquire drugs, even though it's probably the worst way to acquire drugs. <laughs> uh, it, it always comes up in the context of these very um, salacious, negative contexts. Um, and uh, I mean, obviously, there's a reason for that. Like, like we were discussing, Bitcoin is a threat to the existing uh, fiat structure. And, and so um, it, it makes sense that the story that needs to be spun out there is, is, a, is largely a negative one. Um, but to tell hopeful, inspiring stories about Bitcoin and what Bitcoin can do, I think that is, that is very interesting. Um, but it has to be done in a way that's not propaganda. And it has to be done in a way that's actually genuinely interesting, that it actually solves a problem that people are thinking about, that it actually tries to give them that sense of, you know, freedom, empowerment, all the values that I say that we as human beings care about. But how to tell such an organic story is challenging. Um, I, I think it's challenging because largely a lot of the benefits of Bitcoin that we're talking about are hard to articulate. It's not, it's not easy to visualize. It's not easy to just point to and say, you know, here's a shiny new uh, pill that you can take and you get to live 150 years. You know, it's not something like that. So to write speculative fiction about it in a way that feels compelling is hard. Not that people haven't tried. I mean, you know, there are a lot of sci-fi writers who are actually very technically proficient. And I have read at least a couple of stories about uh, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general that I think are really excellent and quite interesting. And I try to write some myself, um, but it's just not, you know, not not something that has built up yet. We're, we're going to try to work on it. Yeah, yeah, I, I would love to see that, especially like, um, you know, the, this, this transition, uh, peaceful revolution idea. I, I would like to see a story of that. I, I don't know, maybe, maybe it needs uh, more thinking out and sort of like a nonfiction treatment first before you can have, um, you know, fiction writers that can actually really look at it and say, okay, well, that that's a cool angle that I can use to tell a story about, you know, something more interesting or more compelling or inspiring, uh, as you say. All right. So um, I, I try to ask uh, my guests this sort of as like a final question. Um, five, 10 years from now, where do you hope... Um, sort of uh, the book publishing, maybe even culture, where, where do you hope that is uh, five, 10 years from now? And what, what's sort of the best and worst case scenario? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going to try to be optimistic here. <laughs> We've seen the doom and gloom. I, I'm hoping that in, in five to 10 years, we're going to see um, the rise of additional revenue streams for uh, writers uh, so that publishing, you know, even as publishing declines in importance as a part of um, the economy and the culture, storytellers find new ways of telling stories. I mean, I'm deeply interested in the potential of VR. Um, you know, I think the, the Quest 2 actually has the potential to be the first great hit um, uh, in that space, in consumer space. And I think VR has the potential to enable all kinds of stories that were just not possible before. And if we can get VR creation down to be more democratized, I, I think there's a lot of uh, potential uh, for uh, writers um, uh, who are willing to move into VR or collaborate with VR creators to uh, create very compelling content that cannot be done otherwise. Um, so I, I hope that, that will take off and, and become a real 
part of the cultural conversation and an exciting uh, a new exciting um, continent uh, for folks to explore. In the same way that you know streaming media uh, has led to this huge explosion in TV that has frankly benefited myself and lots of other writers. I mean, in the old days, you know, getting option for a TV project was extremely rare, but Nowadays, because of the explosion, many, many people have been getting such opportunities to to work in TV. I think it's awesome. So I, I hope that trend continues and that we have more and more opportunities for storytellers to be creators and participate in the cultural conversation and to inspire more people um, to get into it. And, and I'm hoping that we'll see more fragmenting of, of the media space. Uh, I, I don't want to see the rise of, you know, a giant network ever again that dominates the conversation. I don't think that will, that will happen. I just don't think, I think those days are past and they're never coming back. Uh, I think the fragmentation of, of media, of people's attention, of, of micro niches and markets, it's, it's a good thing. And I hope that continues. All right. Well, thank you, Ken. Uh, where can people find you? They can come to my website, which is kenliu.name, K-E-N-L-I-U dot N-A-M-E. And there they can sign up for my newsletter uh, in which I talk about upcoming releases and appearances and tell stories and all sorts of good stuff. Uh, or they can follow me on Twitter, although I don't really post there much except, you know, news about book releases and such. Um, and uh, my next book that's coming out is the third book in the Dandelion Dynasty epic fantasy series. This is the epic fantasy in which, you know, I have no wizards, but lots of great engineers. Um, and they make um, what I call soak punk technology, meaning technology that's based on classical East Asian principles, but done in a fantasy setting. So. You know, I, I, I have them do things like giant tasers uh, launch from airships and, <laughs> and computing machines fashioned out of bamboo and silk and things like that. Uh, and uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, the third book, which is called The Veiled Thrones, coming out next year in June. So if you're, um, you want to get in on that, you should get the first two books. Well, that wraps it up for this episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. Ken can be found at at KYLU99 on Twitter and KenLu.name. Until next time, Fiat Delenda Est. <laughs>